Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to talk about rapid testing coming to Canada, what is happening with office real estate as more people work from home, and we're also going to take a look at the entertainment world and the challenges that that industry is facing and what Borat has to do with it. That's right, Borat. We're also going to do a deep dive on immigration and what businesses should be thinking as we see immigration levels plummet through this pandemic. Now, to get through all this, I'm joined by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert that is here to help us find solutions for businesses dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Great to be here. Uh, when I was in school and it was like you go to class and then they say, well, we're not going to have the regular class. They were going to have a movie. That's what I thought you meant when you said Borat. So we're watching Borat for like 28 minutes. Then we're going to talk news for two minutes. Is that the... You know what? Not quite. Not today. But okay. we will We will talk about it next just time. a little bit later in the show. Next okay. time. Right. Um, although I'm not sure it would be appropriate for not this show. Um, but Mark, let's start by talking about some breaking news that actually came out just a few hours ago. The Canadian government government has unveiled a $10 billion infrastructure plan aimed at helping the country recover through the COVID-19 pandemic. The money will be spent through the Canada Infrastructure Bank and invested in five key areas, uh, clean power, zero emissions buses, home retrofitting, broadband network, and irrigation infrastructure for farmers. Um, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that the three-year plan is expected to create 60,000 jobs. Now, infrastructure spending is a common strategy when it comes to fiscal stimulus. But Mark, what do you make of the focus of this plan? Uh, a few things, actually. What's interesting is that we just announced, uh, and we talked about, I think, on our last show, the fact that we estimate that it will cost us $100 billion to meet the Paris targets in 10 years. And so we've just announced $10 billion. Uh, and I think, uh, I don't have the exact, but maybe six out of that 10 is on things that would help us. And so you sort of say, oh, okay, if you're watching, and uh, if you're preparing for the next election, as, as governments tend to do, you're sort of saying, hey, we're making good on our promises already. Uh, but the other thing I look at, about, uh, look at is, well, we said it was going to be 100 and we're already six in. So I hope these things are going to get us 6% of the way there. Otherwise, we're going to be behind the eight ball pretty soon. So I think about that. I also think about, uh, again, just the fact that uh, it is a little bit of, I'll say, politicking in the sense that the $35 billion for Canada Infrastructure Bank was announced a long time ago. I remember because mm -hmm. my friend was uh, the first CEO uh, of that bank. And uh, this 10 billion is not incremental. So government, it's a little bit of a shell game, but that's, I mean, that's their job. 
Yeah, it, I did want to point that out. Um, my producer may or may not have been telling me to specify <laughs> that it, this $10 billion is not, it's not new money. This has already been part of the $35 billion that was previously announced with the infrastructure bank. But it is interesting that we're getting more details about mm. where the money is actually going to be going. Um, I mean, do you think that is the right approach to, to spend it on these kind of things? Yeah, listen, I, I don't have the the luxury of knowing the, you know, the 35 billion and having a view of where they decided it goes. I do think that it is a great thing if you could uh, do a few things at one time, which is invest in infrastructure that's needed, uh, help us meet our climate targets and get the economy going. And so I, it's kind of like, you know, when you have competing objectives, it's sort of hard to know where to place your money. But if you have something that ticks a bunch of boxes at the same time, then I think that's a good thing. I don't know enough to say that they should have put more in agriculture or more in this, but I, I love clean tech investments. I think the only way that uh, our country is going to move from uh, being the carbon economy that it is to a very large extent uh, is to become a leader in clean tech. And I just don't know if this is enough to really... right sort of make a dent, but yeah, I guess we'll see. We'll see once, once we get more details about, I mean, this is just, you know, the five broad categories. We'll see once right. the investments actually start coming. Um, but Mark, let's talk about another topic, uh, rapid testing this week, health Canada approved a rapid test for COVID-19 made by Abbott diagnostics. The test can deliver results within 13 minutes of getting swabbed without having to use a lab for processing. The new tests are going to be deployed in provinces to help increase capacity and, of course, uh, ease the testing backlogs that we are seeing, particularly in Ontario. Canada has purchased 7.9 million of these tests, and the Prime Minister said they will be distributed within the coming weeks. Um, Air Canada is also jumping on rapid testing. Today, the airline announced it's finalized an order for the same test from Abbott, uh, for 25,000 of them, which they're going to use as part of their pilot project where they're testing uh, international passengers that come through Pearson Airport. Now, Mark, you have been talking about the urgent need for rapid testing for weeks, months. Um, now that it's here, I mean, do you think this is going to make a difference in tackling that testing backlog and just, I mean, helping to stem the spread of COVID-19? I don't know. And the reason I don't know is that our governments are doing a terrible job of actually being clear and showing us what the strategy is and what the plan is. So if uh, Doug Ford uh, were a manager in my company running a client engagement and I were the partner, I would say, Doug, this is the slide I need to see. I need to see these are the four things that we are doing to combat COVID-19. This is testing and monitoring. This is vaccine development and acquisition. This is uh, economic development, this is cures, uh, et cetera. And we don't, we don't have that because they give us dribs and drabs and we are meant to put it all together where it's actually a pretty simple picture. And then I would say, okay, slide two, drill down on testing. What is the strategy? Where is it going? How much do we need? Is, and because what happens is we're all sitting making calculations on our own. And because my, my office, because uh, what we do are analytical, we're doing all sorts of calculations. So Evan on my team this morning spent an hour trying to figure out two different things. One, what's the bottleneck in the in the uh, ID now machine? And so how many can you do in an hour? And is the bottleneck the tester or the machine? 
And then, uh, and then what is the logic or the strategy? Should we be doing random testing uh, given the chance of getting a false reading if you get a false positive or positive or negative given a whole bunch of statistical theory? But Angela Merkel sort of sat down at the beginning of the pandemic and explained to her country very logically, this is why we need to do this. This is the plan for this, because she assumed that her population was smart enough to actually get it. And I assume that as well. I just don't think our leaders are smart enough to deliver it. And so in general, I would say, yes, of course it has to help. But I don't know as I sit here, are they going to put them in long-term care homes? Are they going to put them in schools? Are they going to be doing random testing, which actually given the false positive and false negative likelihood is not a good idea. You actually need to have somebody who has some likelihood of having the virus to take a test to actually reduce the, I'll say, chaos. Um, but generally speaking, if I do the numbers, I would say uh, if somebody gets to a 20% likelihood of having it, it's a good thing to have a test, any test. Uh, and I would say that if we have a 67,000 test backlog and we do 40,000 40,000 tests per day, then we're a day and a half behind where we should be. And if we put another 20,000 tests in per day, we'll catch up and then catch up pretty quickly, if you know what I mean. So it's like I'm giving a general answer because I'm making up my own numbers, uh, but I shouldn't have to. Right. I do think, I mean, uh, over the last few days, especially because we have been, you know, the government announced the other day that they were going to purchase these tests, but they hadn't been approved yet by Health Canada. Right. So I know that Doug Ford was pushing for Health Canada to uh, rapidly approve this because uh, I think their strategy is to deploy this in in places like long term care homes to kind of ease that backlog and, and get the urgent test results right away because that's where they are really needing them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe there's, they need to communicate that plan better or, uh, just let us know of it, but there's a lot of, it does seem like there's a lot of things at play here. Yeah. And the other thing is like, you know, Dougie, as we affectionately call him, (laughs) like he likes to say, like, I'm going to let the scientists do their job, but then he also Mm -hmm. likes to play this sort of folksy, you know, Health Canada, I know you're trying hard. I'm sorry to pester you, but we really need those tests approved fast. Like, what does he actually know about the rigor that should go into approving a test? Like, I guarantee you, if I called Doug and said, here's Bayes' theorem, and here's how to know uh, if the um, if you're actually positive, given that you've had a positive test result, given your in- the incidence rates in the population, it, like, he'd be asleep halfway through. He wouldn't right, know what's but going on. So, like, I don't, do think people, you know, he shouldn't be advocating for that if he's on the other hand saying let the scientists do their job yeah i feel like we're having like a presidential debate we were just kind of screwed, yelling over you each want other me to yell over you? you're a clown no. you're the worst no. no you're great no just, um just, i do think back. though uh on on the testing I, because we've seen the rapid testing in other countries people were wondering well what is taking so long here but uh let's move on to our next topic because we do still have a lot to get to Uh, And talk about office real estate. A new report from CBRE Canada shows that office vacancies are on the rise as businesses continue to uh, work from home and tenants are increasingly looking to actually uh, sublease extra space. In Toronto, the downtown office vacancy jumped from 2.7% to 4.7%. In Vancouver, it went from 33 to 4.6%. Um, I point out those two because uh, they do have, I mean, downtown office space has been, uh, the vacancy rates have been quite low there for a while. 
But Mark, do you expect that those vacancy rates will continue to rise? Is this kind of a sign of things to come? They will continue to rise until the pandemic is over, and then uh, they will go back to what they were before because uh, people do not want to work from home forever. It's no way to live. It's no way to work. And if we assume uh, for a moment that uh, 20% of the work hours that are in offices are going to be worked from home in the future, but you also assume that if that's true, it's because people are afraid of the next virus, which also means that people are going to want more space around them at the office, then you're going to get to net net. We need roughly the same amount of space. The other thing we looked into this morning, uh, which I sort of was wondering, and I I didn't know the answer, 80% of rentable space in this country is industrial space and 20% is office space. Now, when you look at the money, it goes the other way around because of course, office space is more expensive. And you look at the people, it also goes the other way around because in offices, we sort of sit you know, very close to each other, whereas in factories or warehouses, we're, we're quite uh, dispersed. So I think in the long term, I've said this a lot, I, I, nobody's given me an argument that says that uh, we're actually going to create some weird uh, future where we don't all congregate and work together. We may have a little bit of a reduction. And that's really important because that's the way the landlords are viewing it. And that's why you don't see them reducing their price. Because if a landlord has the view that this is going to be mostly over in a year and for sure over in two to three years, they will not reduce their price to secure a five-year lease right now when a lot of that five-year lease, which then gets renewed to be a 10-year lease, is going to be at lower rates because they need to tell their investors, so their equity investors and their debt holders, that actually this building is still worth what it used to be worth. And so what they don't want to do they could explain one year of very low vacancy, which by the way, only happens when you're lucky enough that your lease term ended and you haven't signed a new one. Because, you know, if if a lease is five years, you know, only one fifth of them are going to come due every year. And then people are going to either delay or, you know, if there was a natural churn, then the next one's not going to come in. So, but isn't the, the increase in sublets and subleasing, isn't that usually a sign that, you know, the increase in in demand, for subleasing, not the increase in actual subleasing. Like I, I've had two or three brokers uh, contact me and say, by the way, you know, we'd love to sublease your space. And I'm like, okay, tell you what, bring me a deal and I'll have a look at it. They have no deals to bring me. Because right now, nobody is like, it's a buyer's market, right? So if I decided that for some reason I wanted an extra 5,000 square feet of space, I'd get it like that, right? Uh, because uh, there's plenty of sp- because everybody who has the ability to terminate their lease and leave or didn't have one. So I think people want to sublease. But by the way, if I were to sublease, I would only do it for a short period of time because I believe that in a year or a year and a half, I'm going to need every inch of this uh, space and more because we're a growing company. Uh, and I, what am I going to do? Start looking again? I could tell you the last time we looked for space, it was terrible because it, it was like getting an apartment in New York. Like you had to, we found a spot and I was a little bit concerned about the rate. And the advice I got from multiple people is it's a good spot, just take it. Cause you'd never know when mm-hmm. the next one's gonna come up. You don't even need to say New York. It could have been Toronto or Vancouver just a few months ago so. though, although the, so. the market has changed. Um, but Mark, before we jump into the fix, uh, let's talk about what's happening in the entertainment industry. This week, Disney announced that it would be laying off 28,000 employees as it continues to deal with the impact of the pandemic. 
most of these jobs are at Disney's theme parks, which have been struggling. Um, and in the case of the one in California, I mean, it hasn't even been open. Uh, revenues for the theme park division have been down. They're down 85%. But interestingly, other aspects of Disney's business are recovering, uh, despite the fact that they're in the midst of streaming wars with Amazon, Netflix. I mean, movie production has restarted. They've adapted to the pandemic, releasing Mulan through Disney+. Plus. Um, and they're not alone in adapting. Amazon did acquire the rights to Borat, as we mentioned off the top, the sequel. Um, and they're going to release it on Prime uh, instead of even attempting to go to movie theaters. Uh, but Mark, let's let's start with the theme parks here. Uh, do you think that like will those recover in the in, in the next year or so? Uh, well, don't ask me to put a sort of firm boundary on the no time. time. I'm not going to commit to anything. Uh, but I would say, okay, I'll give you one. I would say Christmas holiday uh, for December 2021, Disney will be the same hellish place that I would never want to step into uh, as it was last year, two years ago, and three years ago, because it's full of a large number of people, uh, and I just never want to go there ever. So I think the crowds will be back in a year from now, and Disney will be back. Disney has nothing but money. They have been here for 100 years. Uh, they'll be here for 100 more, uh, and they can withstand this. They've withstood wars and all the rest. And I don't remember when the first theme park opened, but they are a longstanding institution. Uh, yeah, I think I think maybe during Vietnam, because I think, I think it was when Walt Disney actually died when the theme park started to open. But the point is, you know, the capital is invested. They have an experience that people want to go back to. And again, as I keep saying with capital assets like office space, they invested the capital a long time ago. Money is not worth anything, right? So if you think about the returns for the next 20 years, the fact that there's a one-year holiday on those returns or one and a half-year holiday on returns doesn't matter when you look at the you know the present value of the future cash flows. So. Okay. And then looking at uh, the, the kind of the streaming wars and the competition we're seeing and how everyone's adapting, I mean, do you think that kind of approach... Uh, what do you see happening there as we go forward? Is this kind of um, like, should we expect more movie releases on prime instead of at theaters? Yeah, Cause two things are happening. One is, uh, and we talked about the, the debate about, you know, do you want to delay the release or do you want to just go digital because people aren't going to theaters enough? And I think what we, what is interesting, we talked a couple of times about the potential for Amazon to acquire AMC or another chain. And we may talk a little bit later about a digital and omni-channel and this, the movie industry is, has a version of that, which is you want to be online and in theaters so that you capture everybody where they want to see the movie. And I think the decision that uh, the owners of uh, the Borat franchise made or whoever has the distribution rights made is, you know, we're going to give it to Amazon and we're going to do it digitally because otherwise we're going to wait for theaters to open and we don't want to do that. I don't know if they've kept the rights, by the way, separate for for, digital, for the theaters later, but by that point, everybody will have seen it online. So I think it's, I think, look, we've been going towards a, an over-the-top streaming world anyway, to some degree. And so, but the pandemic, uh, I would say it's not, it's partially accelerated, but it's partially a bit of a blip that will come back down because there are still people who would go to the theater, just not now. So I think it's, I actually think it's natural that a big release that was waiting does not want to wait another year to put their movie out. Especially if, by the way, there are a series of movies because if they delay this one, then they got to delay the next one. And 
Right. Yeah. And it does seem I mean, the goal is to release that movie before the election. And right. um, so and it was filmed throughout the pandemic. Um, it just seemed they decided the best way to see the widest audience would be to go through Prime. Okay, Mark, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, immigration plays a critical role in the Canadian economy. In addition to uh, the multiculturalism, something that is really a point of pride for Canadians, uh, immigration is key to offsetting low birth rates, an aging population, and of course, growing the workforce and expanding the economy. I myself am a first-generation Canadian. My parents both immigrated from Poland. Um, But the pandemic has meant that Canada's immigration levels have plummeted. Uh, Population growth came to a halt in the first three months of the pandemic, growing by 0.1%, which is the smallest increase since World War II, according to Bloomberg. And then overall immigration levels were down uh, 67% in the last quarter alone. Mark, I mean, given immigration has been a key part of the growing the Canadian workforce, let's talk about the potential implications for businesses, particularly those that employ uh, permanent residents. Um, given immigration levels are supposed to be down this year, I mean, what do you think businesses should be considering when it comes to their workforce? Uh, I will answer that. I promise. I just want to. I just want to take us like a half a step back and just talk about the value of uh, Im- immigrants on the economy as a whole. Um, and I would just say um, immigrants are typically better at working, investing, saving, being educated, and a whole bunch of things than Canadians uh, because they typically don't come from countries where they are, I'll say, as lucky as we are. And so they have a grit that is left over from having to struggle a little bit. Uh, And they're also very happy to be here. So I think immigrants are an important part of a society, I'll say, qualitatively for me. uh, But also when you look at it from a business standpoint, because they come and they work hard and they invest, they grow the economy. And everybody who says that we should not be giving jobs to immigrants uh, is really short-sighted because it's a very short period of time where we may have to support them with healthcare or other things, but very quickly they become net contributors to the economy, much more than the average uh, Canadian. When you look at um, when you when you look at the use of uh, immigration or immigrants for uh, businesses, uh, you need to think about the type of businesses. So, so you have sort of temporary or migrant workers who come and do physical labor jobs. Uh, And they play an important role. Uh, So if we think about uh, agriculture, right, and we've talked a lot about that in uh, in our farming communities. So they play a really important role. And not to be funny about it, they do jobs that Canadians don't want to do. Right. And so we need those people to do to do those jobs. Uh, And I'm not sure there are too many solutions uh, for those companies, because if you have to pay a premium to get a Canadian to do that job, you may not be able to afford it. Uh, and so I think they're struggling a little bit. I think they're bringing in migrant workers as allowed. I'm not sure the latest rule, 
but I, I think they I think they sort of uh, are struggling on that front. If you have a knowledge job where you just hire uh, good smart people who happen to come from another country, so like uh, we would, well, I think that job may get taken up by a Canadian in the short term, but also you could outsource that to a foreign country. So we get calls every day, uh, or I get calls or emails every day from somebody in another country who wants to uh, get me to do remote research because we do a lot of research and analysis. You know, don't hire your next consultant, have us do it in India or Eastern Europe or whatever it is, or remote virtual assistants. So there are, if you're in the knowledge capital world and you have an office type of job, you can actually find a way to, I'll say outsource to people who otherwise would be immigrants through a different sort of structure. Um, but the other thing is, I would assume that immigration is going to come right back when this is over, because to your point, like most Western countries, I think all Western countries, the, uh, so I looked at the numbers in 2019, the nat the growth from, uh, the population growth that is natural is 0.2% and falling. And it's going to fall to zero pretty soon. Uh, and the growth from immigration, I think you might have given the same number as 1.3% and rising. And so if we don't want our overall economy to shrink, and if we don't want our country to shrink in terms of power and prestige and all the rest, and I, like Brian Mulroney, think that this uh, country should have 75 million people uh, in the future, that is going to have to come from immigration. And so um, I'm not sure there are too many solutions uh, in the short term, because if you were hoping to hire immigrants, uh, th there's just a period of time where that's just not going to be possible. Uh, I just think you need to remember that it will come back and plan for the future. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned that outsourcing potentially, what, what can you do in the interim as we wait for these, uh, for these levels to recover to what we were seeing, you know, well, just yeah, six, seven months ago? Yeah. It depends on the type of work. So again, if you, if you operate a farm, uh, unfortunately, there's not too many answers. If you're allowed to bring in uh, migrant workers or temporary workers, then I think uh, you're okay and you have to do a very good job of safety given there's a spotlight. If you are manufacturing and you can't have enough workers here, uh, depending on your situation, you can't in the short term shift your supply chain to be offshore. If you were thinking of doing that anyway, okay, maybe, but it's really hard to shift your supply chain offshore sort of on a dime when you can't even go and inspect factories and talk to people. And lastly, as I said, if you're in the knowledge world or in the office work world, then you can find a way. But even there, you have to be careful because you do want to do business with people that you know. Uh, and I believe you can call me old fashioned if you like. You can maybe just call me old if you like. But uh, I think that I think that nothing replaces um, sitting down with people uh, and getting to know them on a personal level, even if you're going to work remotely for the next three years with them. So, uh, I think you can do a little bit of that and there is a structure. There are a lot of businesses that help with that. So you could look at it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We do know how you feel about working from home and making sure you have those, uh, contacts and connections in the office. It's got to be done. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. not taking the opportunity to call me old. You could have, I would have <laughs> done that to you had you given me the opportunity. Yeah. Um, okay, but before we wrap up, Mark, I do want to talk about one final topic, and that's uh, digital innovation in bricks and mortar stores. One of my colleagues in the U.S. actually wrote a piece about uh, Walmart updating its super center stores in the United States for the digital age. The goal is to they're going to revamp both inside and outside, but inside the store, make shopping 
uh, like an end-to-end digital experience. Uh, Mark, should retailers, I mean, we've heard a lot about that experiential shopping, but should retailers be thinking about ways to make their stores and the experience for customers in-store more digital? They should be thinking about it and they should be thinking about how they're going to mess it up because everybody is messing it up and it's terrible. I mean, that's just that's just the story. And and, and Walmart, if anybody is going to mess it up, uh, they do a lot of things. Why do you great. think Walmart, if anybody, because they, they, I mean, they, they do do a lot of things great because they're 12 years behind on digital. Right. Like uh, that's first thing. And because people have been I think I've said this on another show in a slightly different context. When you go to the retail shows. Everybody talks about all these digital things that are going to happen in store and the way they're going to digitize the shelves and the way they're going to digitize the checkout that I talk about and the way they're going to digitize the dressing room. And you keep going to the shows and and it's coming and it's coming and it's coming and it's not here because it doesn't work very well. And so I'm not implying that they shouldn't try, but it's actually very hard to do. Uh, And what you need to think about is how to make certain things digital uh, and Companies and industries that digitize that do a good job at it, they say, what are the low value transactions that we can make into self-service uh, and that take cost out for us as the provider? And if done right, actually make it more convenient for the customer. And what do we leave where we actually want humans or other analog interactions to happen so that we actually maximize the value we can get from the customer? So when you think about bank branches, Uh, Bank branches, I'll I'll say it this way, banks have gone digital, bank branches have not gone digital. Mm -hmm. So you could argue the bank branches are digital because they're ATMs, but they've been ATMs for 30 years. So so when I sort of say, okay, is Walmart well served by trying to make the the experience in-store digital? Like, who are they doing that for? Are they doing that because people want a digital experience? And I go, no, they don't. They want to go to the store because they decided at that time they want to go to the store and they want and when they want to be digital because they want to order their groceries at home or they want information about their loyalty account or whatever it is, they want to do that digitally. So I don't think people personally, I do not think people are hungry for digital in-store experiences. I think some, as I talk about segmentation all the time, some people sometimes want to be in-store because they want the in-store experience. And some people that sometimes want to be on their phone or in front of their laptop uh, uh, to have a digital experience that depends on the person and it depends on what they're actually doing. And so what we've seen, and I'm cynical, I'm cynical in general, but I'm cynical about uh, in-store retail because the self-checkout is the biggest area where you could sort of say, uh, you know, stores have been trying to go digital. And I think you know my view there, but just in case not, it sucks right? It's terrible. It's slow. If you have more than three items, you're looking at the person in line and saying, oh, why can't I just go and get that friendly cashier to check out my 40 item thing in like literally like a minute and a half. You don't even know how quickly they do it. And here I am, man, the scanner doesn't work and oh, bags and where, oh, but the one doesn't work. You do not put it in the bag. I feel like the experience has gotten better. I think I'm going to have to disagree with you there. I don't mind the self-checkout. So I feel like I've gotten good at it. How many items do you do when you do self-checkout? It has to be like less than by the way just a little personal disclosure we have three kids right our basket like (laughs) our shopping trips we spend about seven thousand dollars on a saturday and there are 400 items in our bag right and our (laughs) thing you have like i don't know TV dinners and 20 well, items. I don't know what it is. Because I'm because I'm young, Mark. You're right? a millennial. That's what you are. <laughs> okay. You know what? We're just going to leave the conversation we'll just leave it there. there. That's, 
Yeah, that's all the time that we have for today. If you want to rewatch this episode again or get the latest economic news on the coronavirus pandemic, please check out Yahoo Finance Canada. You can also listen to this show as a podcast. We are on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions for Mark or feedback about the show, please feel free to email me. I'm at A-L-I-C-J-A at yahoofinance.com. Thanks for tuning in. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.